Hello and welcome to this episode of HBCU, where my special guest is Dr. Herman Felton, President and CEO of Wiley College. Herman, welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you on. Thank you, D. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Man, listen, you have uh, an impressive resume and background. I don't know where to get started, but we're going to jump in uh, anyway. So... I'm looking at your uh, your resume, and mm -hmm. you've had a long history with HBCUs, starting with your undergrad graduate degree uh, at Edward Waters College. Yes. So, talk to me about your time at Edward Waters and what that experience was like. It almost didn't happen, D. I was um, a non-traditional student um, working at the post office in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, wanted to go to college. Um, and I had took the SAT, didn't do well, uh, applied to get into UNF and uh, JU. Mm -hmm. um, and I, quite frankly, did not know that Edward Waters was there. Um, and I'm standing in the line to um, register for the Florida Junior College, which is what it was called at that time. Uh, and Mr. Andre uh, Wilson came over and said to me, you don't want to go here. You, you, can, uh, you can go to Everett Waters. And at the time, I thought, like, what, what is that? Yeah. Where? <clears throat> and he said, it's the, it's the black college right down the road. And I'm like, they probably won't take me. Um, I only have a GED. So he said, I'll be fine. You just come on down. I went down, um, got enrolled. That was in uh, May. And because of... Uh, my GED and uh, my uh, unsuccessful attempt at high school and taking tests, um, I had to go through the summer bridge program. And so um, I, it started for me August, uh, well, actually in July. And uh, August was the beginning of my professional career as a student at Everett Waters College. It's the only place that accepted me. Wow. Um, and that gave me an opportunity. And um, I'm forever... Uh, indebted to it. Um, it means the world to me, though. But you graduated from uh, Edward Waters. I did. And went on to law school, correct? I did. Um, three years, uh, I worked full-time at the post office um, and um, went to school full-time, got out in three years, uh, and was uh, awarded a um, full scholarship to the University of Florida, Levin College of Law. So went to law school and um, banged that out in three years. Um, wow. But it was Edward Waters that prepared me for, for law school. Um, yeah, and, and we hear, uh, you know, I think that's really the kind of the back uh, story with HBCUs mm -hmm. is how uh, they provide that support and that nurturing and really prepare you for that next uh, stage of life. Yeah. I mean, you, do you want to reflect back on some of the experiences there? I mean, there's so many. I'll start with E.Z. O'Guerry II, Ph.D., um, a White House fellow, just a brilliant um, uh, political scientist. And he was teaching over at the University of North Florida and knew that it was his obligation to also give that same knowledge right. to students at Everett Waters College. And... Why I had no idea that he was preparing me for um, was excruciating. Uh, we had to take uh, some three, four credit courses, four hour credit courses. And depending on how many credits at the end of the semester, uh, that's how long your exam was. <laughs> and it was written. And we, there were no makeup tests, there were no quizzes, no pop quizzes. 
one test was the determining factor for your grade. Um, and little did I know when we got to law school, the professors exclaiming how difficult it is yeah. and look to your left and look to your right and oh, by the way, uh, if it's a three hour course, you're gonna write for three hours. If it's a four hour uh, credit course, you're gonna write for four hours. Yeah. And I thought to myself, this guy prepared me right. for battle yeah. without me even knowing it. Um, so that, that was just one example yeah. of what happens uh, at these places. I don't care if it's Edward Waters, Howard, um, Tougaloo, yeah. uh, Mississippi Valley, it doesn't matter. That secret sauce right. um, is shared at all of those institutions. So I would I would say just uh, learning about your story, mm -hmm. I mean, you beat really all these statistical odds because one, you don't really see someone, you know, with a GED, you know, graduate from college. That's rare. I mean, mm -hmm. it happens, but it's rare. Mm -hmm. And then you go on to law school, graduate from law school. But then you also have a, a Ph.D. from Jackson State University. Yep. Talk to me about that. Um, you know, serendipitous is probably a really poor word to to try to describe what has happened to me. And it's a phenomenal word. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but it is God, um, a praying mama. Uh, and tenacity um, that, uh, I, you know, was in eight, um, but was honed by the Marine Corps. Yeah. Um, and I had no idea that I was dyslexic. And so I went from, you know, kindergarten all the way to the 11th grade twice thinking that I was slow, had a mental disorder. Yeah. Um, and I remember the moment in second grade when I knew that I couldn't read. Um, and it wasn't that I couldn't read, it, my encoding skills were off yeah. and the letters appeared jumbled at times backwards. So it makes it difficult for you to put, to, put a word together. Right. Um, and so when I was in the Marine Corps and was told that I was dyslexic, um, and then a nugget came with that diagnosis, and it was this little portly, middle-aged white woman that said, you know, you're, most people with dyslexia are above average in intelligence. My world yeah. has not been the same. Just the affirmation. Yeah. Um, that I was not slow, right? Um, right. Which I, I knew I it was a contradiction, right? right? I'm I'm able to navigate things and communicate, but I just felt there was something amiss, right? Um, but her sharing with me that, and then going on, getting out of the Marine Corps, and then going to Everett Waters, and having this confidence that. I didn't do well in public school because, you know, my mom didn't have the resources right, or right. no one even could catch the fact that I was dyslexic. Right. So it wasn't because I couldn't. Um, it was because I didn't know how right. um, or didn't know that I could. And um, and so school came fairly easy to me. Once I was able to read, comprehension right. was never a problem. Never issue, yeah. Um, and so this insatiable appetite to slaughter everything uh, in front of me is just, you know, why I am still where I am. 
And um, it goes back to even Edward Waters, Jimmy Jenkins, um, who was the president at that time. Um, I was the SGA president and I went to a board meeting and the board decided that it wanted to, at that time, uh, increase the admission standards and they wanted to decrease the amount of students who came in through the open door admissions program or the, the open doors admissions process. Yeah. And that's how I got in, open door admissions. And so I watched them go around the table one by one and make a case for why um, they should do that. And then I watched Jimmy Jenkins get up and verbally assault every one of them with the most eloquent words um, in this nexus between the mission then, yeah. the newly freed slave, um, where we are now today and what he believed was our manifest destiny, right. which was tied to education um, and how that opportunity had to be there. And it was at that moment where I knew that I wanted to be a black college president at a small private institution. It was born there. Yeah. He gave me the roadmap and I just sat out like a Tasmanian devil um, <laughs> trying to get there. Well, you have done a great job because you have not, I mean, you are the president and CEO of Wiley College, mm -hmm. but you've also served in that role at other institutions as well. So if you would, just kind of walk me through, mm -hmm. how do you transition into that first presidency role? Um, you know, what's funny is that um, two years in um, 2014, I was appointed president at Wilberforce University. Um, and my mentor, Dr. Jimmy Jenkins and uh, Roger McLean, who was the CFO, um, who has since uh, passed on, um, looked at the financials, looked at the state of the college, and he said, young man, I know you wanna be a president, but this isn't, you don't have the skill set to do this. You don't have the skill set to go into this place and do that. And it was easy for me to say, you, you know what? You, you know better than I do, uh, I'm not going. Um, and so I declined the offer. I went through the process um, and was appointed the president. And, and declined. So I came back to, ever, I met Livingstone for a couple of years. Um, and then I got a, a call out of the blue and it was the chairman of the board who said, hey, we have uh, interviewed a couple of folks. Uh, we're about to make a decision, um, but I remembered your conversation. I remembered us appointing you a couple of years ago. Uh, and I just wanted to check back. The institution is in a better place. You have to be a stronger leader by now. And I went from, you know, a phone call at two o'clock on a Friday, yeah. being the senior vice president and chief operating officer at Livingstone to being the president at Wilberforce. Uh, wow. Didn't interview the second time. It was strictly off the strength of that last interview two years ago. Yeah. Um, and I became the president at Wilberforce, the oldest um, and first African-American owned institution of higher learning. Right. Um, and it was a flat out honor. Uh, to be there as well. What were some of your um, achievements mm -hmm. and challenges at Wilberforce? Uh, the challenges were many. Um, the challenges uh, looked like uh, accreditation issue issues, uh, enrollment issues. Um, all of my predecessors did the very best that they could with the 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 hand that they were dealt with, right? right? Um, and this institution is storied 
but went through some challenges. Um, and they were there waiting for me, yeah. and I left them, and my predecessor uh, had them waiting for him, right. uh, so on and so forth. So it was enrollment, it was uh, academic rigor, um, it was um, you know accreditation, uh, it was all of the challenges that you can think of right. um, at a small private historically black college. Um, and I think we were able to leave it far better than it was when I found it. Uh, no knock on anyone who was there before me. Right. Um, but, you know, our creed is to do no harm. And I certainly feel like I, I didn't harm the institution uh, in those short two years that I was there. And so you, you serve as the president of Wilberforce, mm -hmm. and then you continue to just slaughter everything in front of you, yeah. to use your words. And so tell me about the next presidency uh, appointment that you received. Um, God makes no mistakes. Um, Hayward Strickland, who was my predecessor, I met him while I was at Livingstone College, and he was impressed with the way I served Dr. Jenkins. Um, absolutely enamored with making sure that my president was taken care of. Yeah. Um, enamored with knowing what he wanted um, before he knew what he wanted. Um, just understanding um, what it meant to serve a baby boomer. Like that's yeah. no easy, easy job, right? right? Because they are, in my mind, um, unapologetic about their commanding of excellence. Um, and so, he watched at how I, um, you know, serviced uh, Dr. Jenkins, staffed him, uh, and then he noted that I was at Wilberforce and able to do some stuff. And and he thought, you know, Wiley is, you know, in better shape. It yeah. might be a good a good look for you. Um, and asked if I would be interested. And I um, went through the process and came out um, the 17th president. So. It was, uh, you know, a byproduct of keeping your head down and doing yeah. good work. Right. Um, being excellent where you are will get you where you want to go. Right. Um, but I've always believed that if you take care of what's in front of you, um, then, you know, what's ahead of you will right. take care of itself. Absolutely. Uh, and make ready for you. I couldn't agree with you more on that. Now, we're going to get to Wiley College here mm -hmm. shortly, but I want to know more about the Higher Education Leadership Foundation because it seems that that organization is serving a very crucial role uh, within the HBCU space. I think so. Yeah. Um, it, it was born out of this ideal that um, I was at Livingstone College and that bug of being the president was, was on me. And I didn't know how that was going to happen. Um, and so I knew that I had friends who were committed to these institutions as well yeah. that also wanted to figure out how we could be of service. Right. Um, we all want to lead from the front, but we'll lead wherever we need to lead from. And so um, I was doing research. Um, leadership is something that I absolutely love. Um, and um, you, you start thinking about the space writ large, the sector, the yeah. entire HBCU sector. And at that time, back in 14, they were talking about this impending doomsday of uh, retirement, baby boomers leaving and what's gonna be next. Right. And I remember this executive director for the White House Initiative on HBCUs 
um, stating uh, that he didn't know if there were a bumper crop of leaders coming behind to replace those. And so I thought, you know what? There's a void. I'm going to run to that void and I'm going to fill it. And uh, invited a couple of people to come and talk about HBCU leadership. Um, I invited actually about 15 or 20 people. Two people came. I was like, man, I like this. We're going to do this again. <laughs> I did it again. I uh, invited 40 or 50 people. Maybe two or three people came. And then I had a brother by the name of Reggie Bean who worked at Coca-Cola. Zealot of the space, and I told him, like, man, I think I want to start an organization to train the next uh, wave of leaders. I want to strengthen the pipeline of leadership at HBCUs. And he said, well, that sounds like a great idea, certainly a need, um, but let me know when you get down the road. Yeah. And so I went, filed for articles of incorporation, did a 501c3, got a website, built everything, went back to him and said, hey man, I'm gonna do an event in June. I found a place, et cetera, et cetera. Wasn't thinking about anything, wasn't asking for any support. He gave me a check for $25,000. Wow. And that was the beginning of the Higher Education Leadership Foundation, which twice a year, we would select 25 members and expose them to presidents that are newly appointed, those who are in the middle of their, their journey and those who are at you know, the, the, the tail end, yeah. while also helping them understand the nexus between the vice president of institutional advancement and the vice president of student affairs and the vice president for finance and the vice president for athletics and the vice president for academic affairs, understanding how it all works. Right. And we've been successful, 425 fellows to date. We've had 12 cohorts. Um, seven of us are HBCU presidents now. Mm. Um, we don't espouse to be the reason, the singular reason why they are uh, HBCU presidents, but they weren't HBCU presidents before they went to health. Right. Uh, and all of us share that, and a lot of us gleaned some pretty good points, particularly around interviewing, yeah. uh, executive uh, presence and all of those things. Um, and we find ourselves in this wonderful place now where we're looking for voids in the space, running to them and filling them. Um, you know, we have a, a, an academic journal that will be produced uh, here at uh, the first week of April uh, for our scholars. Um, and we have a podcast. Uh, and now we're doing um, two things, training um, newly appointed presidents um, because the average tenure for a president at HBCU is 3.8 years. Yeah. Nobody wins there. The institution needs the stability right. Right. Uh, and the presidents need the job, right? right. Um, and uh, so we're, we're helping with that with a grant with UNCF uh, powered by Kresge, the Kresge Foundation. And we also set out to do something that I think is bold and audacious, which is to convene um, a gathering um, to talk about sustainability at HBCU. So in June in Charlotte, um, the Charlotte Convention Center, we're hosting the Ideation, Innovation and Collaboration uh, Institute for the future of HBCUs. And we're bringing the entire academic enterprise together to ideate around, yeah. you know, how do we find self-agency? Right. Um, so it's it's morphed into something, quite frankly, that I never would have imagined uh, that it would be. But 
uh, we're here. And uh, I think uh, there's a lot of work to do in that space as well, all in the vein of uh, sort of what you're doing here. Yeah. You know, amplifying uh, right. the, the brilliance, uh, the intelligentsia, um, the ingenuity at right. HBCUs. Uh, our focus is, you know, rather myopic and it's around the leadership. Right. And so now let's get to Wiley College where you currently serve as president and CEO. Mm -hmm. um, tell me, how do you land at Wiley College? And I see that you have done a lot of um, projects since you've been there, mm -hmm. capital improvement projects, mm -hmm. raising funds, et cetera. So mm -hmm. tell me about that journey. Um, getting there was phenomenal in that um, the board was very intentional about having a true um, peaceful transition. I came in February and I learned, I was quiet, I read, I observed for six months. I watched uh, about four months. I watched my predecessor manage uh, cabinet meetings. Uh, I went through policies, um, looked at them. I studied the habit of uh, the workforce. Um, and when he departed in July, the 1st of July, I wasn't coming in looking under the hood for the first time. I kind of knew where our strengths and weaknesses were and opportunities for us to make some, some positive impact. Um, and um, it allowed for me to have a running head start. The other yeah. thing that he did was um, allowed me to pick my entire cabinet. He had his entire cabinet resign before I got there and it allowed me to sink or fall right. uh, with a team that I wanted to build. Right. Um, and I'm forever indebted for that decision. Um, and then it was really about being in concert with the board of trustees, um, and which was so easy because he had a phenomenal relationship with them. And Wiley has been in existence for 149 years and they've only had 17 presidents. Wow. And that, that, talk, that shows you what type of board governance and right. partnership and collaboration with the administration right. they have. And so they're used to stability. Right. Um, and so we were able to get in and just put our heads down and, and tackle the challenges that were in front of us around um, accreditation and um, the, uh, uh, the heightened cash monitoring process, which means that the college has to front their money before you draw it down. You have to you know, pay scholarships, pay um, financial aid. Um, and so we had to work through some of those issues, yeah. but then we, we started looking at the campus and the infrastructure and just, you know, really raising money and reallocating resources to, to make some enhancements on the campus. It's, it's been, uh, four years deep, yeah. but it feels like it's been 40. <laughs> <laughs> and so from a challenge perspective, mm -hmm. we know that, uh, it's, you know, challenges are not. Um, abnormal to HBCUs, no. I think. Um, any college. Yeah, any college mm -hmm. across the board. What would you say has been your, your biggest challenge? Um, I think following uh, a giant, someone who's been at an institution for 18 years, yeah. you know, um, the, the council or the American Governing Board, AGB, um, did a study some years ago where they talked about culture and how long it takes to change culture. Right. Um, and uh, the longer the tenure, the longer it typically takes. Right. Um, but on average, they, they presuppose that it's about three years to change the culture. Uh, I'm 25 years younger 
than my predecessor. Um, and he was there for 18 years. And so some of those people um, only knew his work ethic, how he worked, his cadence. And I'm just uh, a ball of fire, like just constant. Um, yeah. And I want stuff now. Um, I believe that kindness is the only way to operate. I don't have to be nasty to tell you that you've missed a mark, um, but I demand that we are kind to each other. Um, that's an adjustment for some people. Right. Um, and I think the biggest challenge has really been getting people to understand the sense of urgency um, and to remind them of the greatness from which we came. Um, so I think those the challenges of fiscal resources and academics and all those good things will yeah. always be there, but changing culture is it. Absolutely. Dr. Felton, I want to say this to you, that your story is remarkable, mm -hmm. and I think it's one that's emblematic of the American dream. Um, you are proof that a person that sets their mind to something, they can achieve whatever they want to achieve right here in this great country we live in, America, despite all of the flaws that we may you know, know about. Yeah. And so for your service and dedication and your continued commitment to advancing historically black colleges and universities, I want to award you with our HBCU Lifetime Achievement Award for wow. all that you've done. And I appreciate you, your inspiration. Thank you, dude. And uh, you're also my fraternity brother. Yes, I can't, I I can't close yes, the show without, without acknowledging you that you are a member of the noble clan of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Indeed. Incorporated. Indeed. And uh, to my viewers, thank you for watching this episode of HBCU. And remember, without you, there's no me.